for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. As we are getting closer to breeding season this fall, I thought it would be a great time to have Dr. Jamie Stewart back again. She is an assistant professor in production management medicine at the vet school at Virginia Tech. And she was previously with us on an episode where we talked about artificial insemination in goats. Welcome back, Dr. Stewart. Thank you for having me again. So the first thing I want to just like really basic here, and that is we want to talk about the fact that like a buck is truly half of your herd. And if you're new to raising goats, you might feel like, oh, I just want to find a cheap one. He's, he's only going to have to work a couple days a year and I'm going to have to feed him for 365 days. But it really is important that you get a really good quality buck. And just going back to like super basics here, and that is that, that your buck needs to have two testicles. Um, it, it's kind of funny. The first time I heard about the possibility that cryptorchidism was genetic, found a study from the 60s when they were apparently breeding cryptorchids all the time. And I was just like, why did anybody think that this was a good idea? So can you talk a little bit about uh, cryptorchids and why you don't want to use them for bucks? Absolutely. You know, and some of it's going to come back to what you're selling the kids for. Some of it's going to come back to your intended use for that buck. So certainly the big thing that you already touched on is that you're going to continuously pass down that gene and you'll continuously have more animals, more males that are born that are prone to getting that. And so if you're selling, you know, if you're selling these animals to become pets per se, you know, we see that quite a bit. It's growing in popularity just to have goats as pets. You get more of those cryptorchids. And where that becomes a problem is some people will just maybe not notice and they'll ban their kids and just take out one of the testicles. So then um, we were talking about this before the podcast a little bit about how we can sometimes get these pet male goats coming in and well gee doc they're smelling like a buck and they're acting like a buck what could be wrong with it he's castrated I don't see any testicles and about a hundred percent of the time they certainly have a testicle within that abdomen so that becomes kind of a down the line problem if you're not checking adequately before you castrate to make sure that you get both of those in there um, and then going, you know, along the lines with the bucks, even if the the smelliness and the behavior doesn't turn you off, you can get issues even further down the line again with the pets that if you're planning on having them live in your herd for a long time, having that testicle in the abdomen is a nidus for tumor formation. So when we think about things like neoplasia, that testicle in the abdomen um, is going to be very prone because it's in an environment it's not used to being in. It's supposed to be outside the body. And so once you have it inside the body, getting exposure, and it's still going to be producing all the testosterone and everything, it's still going to be able to produce sperm, albeit they'll be a little bit less fertile than your normal buck, but it's still possible for them to get things pregnant. But then down the line, it's also a risk for getting cancer. And by the time that you would probably figure it out, it would probably be too late to consider any kind of our treatment options like surgery. So certainly the best thing to do for those is just to castrate them and take care of those testicles early on. But um, that, that seems to be the issue mostly with our pets. And then even with, you know, breeding populations, it comes back to just the continuously passing it on. 
So if you have a breeding animal and you decide, I'm just going to keep breeding them, um, you have that issue. Right. And like we talked about in the artificial insemination episode, you know, one reason you might want to do AI is to bring in some really excellent genetics, you know, such as for parasite resistance or something like that, or even like show quality and things like that, where you can't necessarily afford a live buck, but you can bring in the semen to do that. And so that's just one thing I always try to stress to people when they're, they're buying a buck is to make sure you're getting the best you can get. A lot of us who have, especially like small backyard dairy herds, you know, only have like 10, maybe 20 does. We tend to have multiple bucks. Like I know I, the main reason I've had multiple bucks is because I want to have a closed herd. And I like, I haven't bought a doe since 2005 because of biosecurity reasons. And I only buy a buck about every five years or so. And, and I've got enough doe lines that I can breed that buck to different does and then breed, breed a buck from them to a different doe and, and keep going for quite a while without having to bring in any new bucks. Because again, biosecurity, even though I'm always buying from herds that have a long history, like 10 years or more of negative tests for CAE, CL, and Yonis. But I was reading your um, paper, Management of Reproductive Diseases in Male Small Ruminants, and one of the things that you say in there is that one buck can breed 50 does in a breeding season. And that's where I really started thinking about like, oh my goodness, like if you have one buck that you're expecting to breed 50 does, you really want to be sure that he can get the job done. I remember what it was like, my absolute favorite buck ever when he was eight years old. You know, it was like October, he bred does, nobody got pregnant. November, he bred does, nobody got pregnant. And I was like, you can't be sterile. And I used him again in December. And thank goodness I have Nigerians. So I wasn't too worried about missing that heat window because they tend to come into heat a little longer than most dairy goats. I finally gave up on him. And, and it was really just a matter of a couple months when his testicles shrunk up, he stopped stinking. <laughs> he just, it was obvious he was no longer a buck. The testosterone was gone. So when we talk about this, like, cause this article that you wrote, one of the things you talk about are breeding soundness exams. And I can certainly see that if somebody has one buck that they're expecting to do the job with 50 does, you can't wait and see if they're coming back into heat because that could be really bad for business. So can you tell us a little bit about what a breeding soundness exam done by a veterinarian involves? Absolutely. So it's actually one of my favorite things to do because it does have such an impact on your herd. It's just so important. I can't stress that enough. So usually what we start off with is doing just a general physical exam because it's more than just doing a semen analysis. It's identifying because once you get to the semen analysis, if you find a problem, then you're going to have to go back and find where the problem is. So we always start with our physical exam, you know, just making sure the animal's in good health. You know, we look at the eyes, the nose, making sure that there's, you know, signs of respiratory disease with the eyes. We want to make sure that there's nothing impeding his vision. So that's a big one that people tend to not think too much about. But if you think about you know, if you're sitting outside watching your females in estrus, what are things that they're doing? They're showing signs of estrus. And there's a evolutionary reason why they do that. Because if, you're, if your little buck goes up to 
um, a female who's not in estrus and tries to mount her, she's going to kick him and he's going to get hurt. So evolutionarily, she exhibits those signs of estrus so that he can see it from afar and know that she's safe to approach for mounting. So that's why when you're doing natural cover, the eyes are so important. And we always look at that, make sure there's no tumors, ulcers, pink eye, any any of that sort. So we look at that. And then feet are the other big things because you know, now that he's seen the female, he has to be able to get to her and he has to be able to mount, you know, and that that takes all four hooves. It's not just, you know, the back ones are probably a little bit slightly more important, but he still has to be able to get to her. If he's really lame and he can't walk all the way across the pasture, then he's not going to be as efficient for his breeding. And so then kind of going forward of, you know, we look at the feet, we look at the eyes and the overall condition, his body condition too, is also super important. So before the breeding season, we always like the males to be slightly over conditioned because if you think about it for about a month or two, all he's going to be thinking about is going around and breeding females. So his, what we call a voluntary feed intake is going to decrease. So we want him to start off where he's, you know, slightly on the heftier side, not too much. There's definitely a fine line, but um, enough that if he's not eating as much over the next month, that it's not going to cause him to waste away. So those are the things for our physical exam. And then we move to what we call kind of our focused reproductive exam, where we're going to look at the actual prepuce itself. Um, plus or minus, sometimes we'll exteriorize the penis. A lot of times it'll come out when we collect the semen. So we wait um, before we look at the penis. We'll wait till we do our semen evaluation. So then before that, we go to palpating the testicles um, and you really want them. Let's see, my colleague here says you want them to be the consistency of a grapefruit the day before it's ready to be eaten. Very specific. You want you don't want them too soft. Usually that means there's some degeneration. And certainly if you go around and feel some of them outside of season, you'll feel that softness. And that's normal outside of the season. But when they're gearing up to breed, um, you want them to have a little bit of turgidity but not overly firm, um, not like you're feeling like a tennis ball. And so we feel those and you should be able to kind of freely move them within the scrotum too. So the scrotum is just kind of the skin covering and then you've got the two testicles in there. So you should be able to freely move them. And then the other big thing that we want to feel for is a differentiation between what we call the testicle and the epididymis. And that's really important, especially with our rams and bucks, because they are so prone to getting what we call epididymitis that the biggest way to note that is by understanding if you're feeling the testicle or epididymis to know what's enlarged. I had students come to me one time after doing their physical exam. They're, oh, his right testicle is really enlarged. And I went to go palpate his testicle. And there's actually an image of it in the article that you mentioned that I uh, co-wrote where I basically outlined where everything is. And I felt him and yeah, there was a big mass there, but it was all a big epididymis. The testicle was actually really small and degenerated. The epididymis was just full of pus um, and the disease. So that's why it's so important to be able to feel that differentiation and know what your what structures you're feeling. So then after we do that, um, the one thing that we really miss in our small ruminant exams that we do in our bull exams is a transrectal palpation to feel some of those accessory sex glands. So those are the structures that produce all of the fluid that come out with the sperm. And so we don't do that routinely, but we can do it with an ultrasound um, using, we, I have this little probe introducer if we suspect that there's an issue, but we don't routinely do it just because most of the time you're going to, you'll find an issue with the semen that you would have to end up tracing back to that. So um, we just don't do it routinely because it's just kind of logistically hard to do. 
So then we do our semen collection and we look at the sample. We're going to look at the motility. We want to look at the sperm morphology. So just basically looking to make sure that each of those sperm cells, we usually count about 100 of them, that they look normal. So we there's three parts of the sperm. There's the head, there's the midpiece and the tail. And the worst defects that you can find are on the head and the midpiece. And those ones are so important because they'll have normal motility. So you look and the sperm are all moving normally and they'll be able to actually get to the oocyte and they'll fertilize the oocyte, but then that oocyte won't be viable because of the defects within the DNA of it. And so that's why those can be pretty um, dramatic and why we wanna make sure that we rule those out. Um, whereas the ones that don't have tails, they're not gonna go fertilize anything. So the sperm just kind of end up not going anywhere and they're easy to notice. So, you know, even the lay person that's just, you know, has a microscope at their house, which, you know, I've had plenty of producers that do just to kind of keep an eye on their semen quality. They'll look at it under the microscope and it's pretty easy to point out a whole bunch of them that have tail defects because they're not going to be moving. So that's, <laughs> I guess, the long version of uh, what we do for our uh, breeding soundness exam. Oh, that's great. That's really good information. And a lot of that too, I think if somebody only has a few goats and two or three bucks that they can obviously like pay attention to a lot of that, you know, like, are their feet good? Are their eyes good? That kind of stuff. It's amazing how everything, every body part practically can affect a buck's ability to breed successfully. One of the things I that I remember from like many years ago when we were having a problem with severe parasites on our farm was a buck that was severely parasitized like he bred a doe once very unenthusiastically and just kind of you know dropped off and didn't seem to think about it again you know and which you know you look I look back on it as like well of course not like you know he was anemic and not feeling well so also obviously people should be paying attention to that and like see if you know what their goats famacha score looks like and their body condition is there anything else that that people should be looking for at home to um make sure that their buck is in good condition for breeding so one of the things that really tends to be missing on our breeding soundness exam is doing an assessment of libido and basically just the willingness to breed. And so luckily, you know, I think most of the time we don't have issues with that. But because we can't really assess that in the clinic, you know, they're not out there breeding females, we really rely on our producers to watch for that. You know, we can tell them that you know, that everything looks okay and you know, the sperm are moving and the sperm have good quality, but if he's not out there with the willingness to breed, just like you said, that can have just as devastating consequences. But they, he has to kind of be in his normal environment for you to be able to see that. And the other thing is, you know, it's it's always good for you to kind of watch them mounting and make sure that they're getting bred because sometimes they might have issues with even just intromission itself. And so again, we can make sure that there's no masses on the penis. We can make sure everything looks pretty normal. But again, if he's, you know, if he's got some nerve damage that we can't necessarily see, that can affect his ability to basically penetrate the female and get the job done. So we, you know, we do our best. And again, those situations are few and far between. But I definitely go back to your point where the best thing you can do is just make sure he's in a good body condition score. Watch closely for any lameness. Um, Famacha scoring, absolutely critical. And any, any kind of disease, the earlier that you recognize it, the better. If you notice that, you know, one testicle looks bigger than the other, the earlier that you address that stuff, the better the outcome is going to be.
A little earlier, you mentioned a swollen epididymis. So I'd like to talk more now about epididymitis because until I read your paper, I had no idea. I mean, the, the number of causes just goes on and on and on. And, you know, there, there were just so many from like physical to infectious. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more because some of these, you know, in some cases, like they're just not going to be able to breed. But in other cases, we're talking about like they could start an abortion storm on your farm. Yeah. And luckily, the majority of pathogens that will affect and cause epididymitis aren't going to be the ones that cause an abortion storm. So that's the good news. The bad news is, um, you know, if it's affecting your males during breeding season, you're going to have a really unproductive season um, if it's not caught early and addressed. So I had, and this was back when I was at Illinois, I had a client who, just like I said before, she did a good job at, you know, she would collect semen and check it to make sure the motility is good. And she had a, a buck that was out they had just bought. And they noticed that a lot of the does were coming into heat again and coming into heat again. So she looked at a semen sample and thought that the motility looked low. So they brought it into us to work up. And by the time he got to us, the sperm that we saw on the slide was completely dead. And he had a pretty significant epididymitis where there was really no functional testicle left. And it was it was pretty devastating for them because they had spent a lot of money on this buck. It was a it was a show herd. So um, they spent a lot of money on this buck to breed to their good females. And, you know, then being able to tell her whether or not, you know, did he pick this up on their farm or did he pick it up? beforehand, it's really quite unpredictable because, you know, certain pathogens can act really quickly and certain pathogens can maybe brew a little bit. But as I kind of mentioned before, the earlier that you pick up these things, the better it's going to be. And the best time to pick it up is during your routine breeding soundness exam and um, before there's even any lesions in the testicles. So a lot of times what we might find is when we do the semen evaluation, we might see that there's a bunch of white blood cells in the ejaculate. And so then that might prompt us to, okay, let's stain this and make sure they're white blood cells. And then, well, maybe we should do a culture of this and make sure that it's not, you know, a pathogen that we should be concerned about um, that can cause an epididymitis. And certainly in the paper you're referring to, um, there is a number of pathogens that can cause that. And the good news is things that are really quite devastating. So chlamydia is one of them. Um, Brucella is the other. They're much more rare if you've got good biosecurity. So they're not necessarily going to bring those in very easily. The bad news is other pathogens such as Truparella or Actinomyces, a lot of those most of the time won't cause harm to your females. It's just going to be devastating for your male because they just develop such an immune response and they get all the pus that locates to that one spot. And once it starts to become clinical, then there's not much you can do for that testicle. Now, if it's affecting one side and not necessarily the other, you know, if it's a valuable animal, we can remove the one testicle and save the other side. So there's a very, I, I mentioned this with the cryptorchidism, there's a very distinct balance of heat exchange that keeps that testicle at just the right temperature. And so when you have inflammation, it's going to negatively infect both testicles. So um, if you are going to make the decision to do what we call a hemicastration to save the good testicle, you have to make that decision pretty quickly. And obviously, you know, it gets to be a little bit more expensive of a procedure. So it just ends up being how valuable that male is to you. But um, we've had plenty that can breed with one testicle. It just ends up uh, Instead of 50 females, maybe he can cover 25. <laughs> but yeah, being able to identify 
you know, as soon as you see that there's a testicle that's enlarged, getting that looked at ASAP is going to be the best route if you want to preserve any fertility. So on the topic of chlamydia, I've always just heard of it in terms of like it causing an abortion storm, never really thought of where it came from before. So when I saw in your paper that it, it can come from a buck during breeding, that was really surprising. And I was thought, wow, okay, so this is a really good reason not to do buck service. <laughs> because I mean, like, I, I won't do buck service for anyone, unless the doling was born here and she's bought by somebody who has no other goats. So basically there's close to zero risk of disease transmission. And I was always just thinking of the big three, you know, CAE, CL and Yonis And Illinois is a brucellosis free state. So that's really not usually at the front of my mind, but chlamydia is definitely another thing. So if somebody came in with a doe that had chlamydia and my buck bred her, could he then spread it to my whole herd? Absolutely. And that's, you know, why we emphasize biosecurity so much, because that definitely could be a concern. Because most of the time, something like chlamydia, it can cause lesions in them. But a lot of times it won't, they'll just kind of asymptomatically hold on to it. And then yeah, they can give it to your females and kind of keep passing it along to each other. And, and then if you bring a new male in, and he breeds that female, then he picks it up. And then he can, you know, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And chlamydia is a horrible disease because of the risk of abortion and, and having so many goats abort in your herd. Well, and so, and then one of the other diseases that I saw a lot when I was at Illinois, so much that I wrote a whole separate paper about it is um, CL or what we call crinibacterium pseudotuberculosis. You know, we always think of that one as the disease that causes the abscesses under the jaw. And then in more severe cases, sometimes in the lungs, things like that. But we saw quite a few cases where the abscesses from the CL pathogen will set up shop in the testicles. And again, once you get those abscesses in the testicle, you know, you're not only is he not going to be fertile, but you shouldn't let him breed. You shouldn't let him stick around because um, we actually cultured the C. pseudotuberculosis pathogen from the semen in one of these bucks. So if he was going around breeding, then he's inoculating your females with the CL bacteria and not only inoculating them, but inoculating them in the reproductive tract, whereas another place that they could be setting up. And then just CL in general, you know, again, you were talking about, you know, how you test for it, which is great. I know a lot of people that just end up wanting to just live with it because, okay, well, it just causes the abscesses under the chin. We can deal with that. But, you know, the more we learn about it, the more we know, well, it's not causing just that. So even when it's, when there's no lesions, no lesions in the testicles, there's actually a exotoxin that it produces. It's called phospholipase D. And this exotoxin actually attacks the testicular cells. And even if they're not clinical, it can severely affect their semen quality. And they could quickly become subfertile or infertile from just having the pathogen, even without any lesions. So that's one of the reasons, especially if you have, you know, if you rely on breeding, that I really try to emphasize to producers to make sure that they're, you know, trying to keep CL out of their herd. Another thing that you mentioned in the paper is orchitis. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that condition? Yeah, so orchitis and epididymitis are, are both very similar things. So I'll just kind of talk about the anatomy here really quickly is the sperm are produced in the testicle and then from the testicle, they are transported through the epididymis 
to your vas deferens and then out the body. And so they are all connected to each other. Um, and as they're going out the body, that's where I talked about the accessory sex glands. They add all of the fluid to it. Um, as it's coming out. So all of these organs are all connected to each other. And it's it's not uncommon that if you have an epididymitis that you can have an orchitis. So orchitis is just inflammation of the testicle and epididymitis inflammation of the epididymis. You can have those concurrently. But the thing about them is both of them can be caused by a lot of the same pathogens because it, it does run along that same track. So you can have just one that's affected. You can have both that are affected but they, they cause the same thing and both are devastating. And so if you've got an epididymitis, what tends to happen is your sperm starts to get backed up and then you get degeneration of that testicle if it doesn't get infected. Um, if you have an orchitis, it's usually that testicle's large. It's going to be um, pretty firm. It might be hot to the touch um, when you feel it. And then some of that bacteria will end up setting up shop in the epididymis. And, you know, if you don't catch it and it'll progress to getting an epididymitis and then it can infect your accessory sex glands too again. But, you know, the, the big thing is it's going to be devastating if you've got those clinical signs, just because that testicle is the shop where all the sperm are being produced. So it's really important to take care of that, but it doesn't have to be all infectious disease. That tends to be what we think of because, you know, we, we get so worried about spreading things within our herd. So we always jump to infectious diseases first, but certainly orchitis being just a general term for inflammation of the testicle can be from things like trauma too. If, you know, if he got kicked or um, the males are fighting and they rammed each other, things like that. And so with an ultrasound, you know, that's why getting your vet involved is helpful. You can differentiate what some of these things are um, just by looking at it. Certainly if there's fluid around the testicle, that would be more of an indication that, you know, maybe that there was some trauma because you can get some like what we call a hematoma or seroma around there from the trauma. And then, you know, you can try some medical management of those. But again, it comes back to my first point of if you're trying to preserve fertility, the longer that you've got that excess heat there, the less likely your other testicle is going to be functional at the end of it. So if you're going to preserve fertility, sometimes hemicastration is going to be your best bet. But if you're not sure if you want to keep him around, um, maybe just see how he does after he resolves, then you can certainly try. We would probably do some like hose therapy, antibiotics to prevent it from getting infected, things like that, if it's trauma versus infectious, where we'd probably just, you know, say to go ahead and get rid of him. Now, if the testicular tissue looks normal, which again is where ultrasound comes in handy, there's some antibiotics we can try and some medical management we can try. And if what we call the parenchyma of the testicle is not affected yet, um, we might be able to stop it in its tracks. Oh, that is amazing. I have a note here for the transcript. Did you say hose therapy, H-O-S-E? Yeah, cold hose therapy. So you basically just spray it with cold water. Oh, got it. They don't really appreciate it, but it does help. We, you know, we do it for feet. We do it for prepucial swelling. We do where we just spray it with a cold hose just to try to help bring that inflammation down. Okay. You explained it beautifully there. (laughs) (laughs) This has all been so fascinating to me and it's definitely brought to mind a situation in a goat group I was in many years ago where a ranch manager joined the group and was very frustrated that she was not able to find somebody to do buck service because she lived on this ranch. They had a lot of horses that were worth tens of thousands of dollars. And she said, it's quite easy to find stallions to breed your mares. Um, And she did not understand why it was so hard 
to find bucks because the owners had bought a few goats and she did not understand why there were so few people willing to do buck service for does. And, you know, I explained biosecurity and I've always been wondering then, like, do goats have more problems? Are there more sexually transmitted diseases with goats than with horses and cows and other animals? I wouldn't say that there's more. Certainly with cattle, I would say it's pretty equivalent. Um, But I think, you know, with cattle, it's a lot more people are willing to keep keep a closed herd. Certainly dairy cows, they do more AI anymore. Um, But with beef cows, a lot of people keep kind of a closed herd or it's easier sometimes to test for some of the pathogens that we're more worried about with those. Um, With small ruminants, I think it's just it's a different number of pathogens that can be an issue. For horses, I unfortunately don't do a whole lot of horse work, but, you know, I know that they do extensive testing on the horses and some of it comes to how much it costs to do all those tests. Also, you know, a stallion where you just mentioned, you know, everything's worth tens of thousands of dollars for a stallion. It's much more worth their time to spend hundreds of dollars on on these tests you know, between every female to make sure that he's not passing anything on. But, you know, if you want to have somebody come breed your five does, you know, are you going to spend hundreds of dollars to do testing on a buck to make sure that he's not bringing things back and forth? I think that's where the the difference comes in for them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because I'm sure that those breedings for those horses are not cheap. <laughs> right. So that definitely the cost of all that testing is built into it. And I mean, I think most people, you know, charge 50 or a hundred dollars for buck service if they do it. So that doesn't even, I like, we recently did biosecurity testing and with us drawing the blood, it was, you know, $24 was the lab fee alone. So like that just wouldn't be worth it. And that's just for CAEC, Alignones, that didn't even include chlamydia or any of these other diseases that could be transmitted. Exactly. This has been really fascinating today. I am going to feel so much less guilty in the future now when I tell people, no, I don't offer buck service just to goats that I don't know. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that people should keep in mind as we get close to breeding season? I would say, you know, if you're not offering buck service, you know, don't rule out that if they want to do transcervical AI, something like that, they're, you know, not concerned about, you know, what's going to be in the semen is you can always do fresh semen too. So you can, you know, if they want to pay for it, have somebody come collect your buck and then, you know, they can breed it. Again, if it's just a smaller number of does, you can extend that out to cover quite a few does. So that would be an option too for those situations. Oh, that's good to know. How long is fresh semen good at room temperature or something that most people could do rather than a nitrogen tank? Usually if you keep it in the fridge, you have to get extender for it, which again, if you're having somebody come collect it, most of the time they'll have that. It should be good for, depending on the extender, 48 hours up to about five days. It'll depend on the buck and the um, extender that you use. Okay. That is great to know. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash LoveGoatsPodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.